0: It was July 16, 2007, and my family and I were on vacation just south of the border in Mexico, south of the border in California, in Mexico, in Baja, and we were meeting uh, some relatives that my kids had never known. And all week long, my 13-year-old son was like begging me to go swimming. Dad, the beach right there. We gotta go swimming. But you know, we're meeting that family, meeting the other family, so we never had time to, to get to the swimming part of it. But on this day, we're finally gonna get to it. And I wanted to have, you know, I wanted to give him a fun experience, have a great time with my son. So just before reaching Rosarito, we saw a beach. It was a little deserted. Uh, there was a lifeguard stand, but no lifeguard. Um, tide was going out, and uh, I noticed that, and, uh, um, but I kind of, uh, wanted to have so much fun with my son against a small little voice in the back of my mind that said, man, the water doesn't look quite right here. We jumped in and started having fun together. This picture was taken by my daughter. We discovered it sometime afterwards. She took that picture moments before we jumped in to the water. And it was, before we knew it, he just ran in the water. He's a midwestern kid, so he doesn't know about the beach. I grew up in the tropics, so I knew about riptides and the beach and all of that. But before I got a chance to talk to him, he just took off, running, got into the water. When we got into the water, all of a sudden I began to notice he's kind of being taken out into the ocean. But not only him, me too. It's like every time we'd go up and down, we'd be another ten yards, another ten yards out. So I thought, hey, no, we're 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 done here. Uh, I need to swim to him. We're, we're getting into a, a bad situation here. So I started swimming to try to catch up to him as he's kind of being taken you know, out into the ocean. And uh, just as I was getting close to him, he looks at me and he's now struggling, trying to keep above the water. And a wave went over and he went down. And then all of a sudden I could see his hands struggling to get back up to the surface and the water just barely right at the surface of his face as he comes out, he sputters, help, I can't. And I can't tell you the streak of chilling, chilling terror that went down my spine as a dad watching your son struggle for air. I finally got up to him and right when I got close to him, he grabbed me, and he started climbing on top of me. And, and I, I couldn't keep him and me up, and so, and so we both went down. And then we came back up gasping for air, and a million thoughts raced through my mind at that time. And I remember looking at the shore and seeing how far we had gone from the shore, and I concluded, we're about to die. You know, you always wonder, am I going to die? What are my last days going to be like? Uh And I thought, well, I'm just about to find out because it's happening right now. Maybe five, maybe 10 minutes, but there was no way we were getting back. I'd kind of made that conclusion. We were too tired. We were exhausted. My son's struggling. He's panicking and nobody on shore could help. Again, no lifeguard, no boat, nothing. Just my family. And I could see them strolling along, but even they didn't know we were in trouble. Um, What happened in the next few seconds would save our lives. Now I'll get back to that in a few minutes. (laughs) It was a strange ordeal when we got back to the shore and we did get back, I am standing here. Um, Unspeakable relief mixed with shock at what had just almost happened. A terrible ordeal was over or so we thought. When I reached the beach, I immediately collapsed and I started vomiting. I remember telling my dad, man, this feels like two decathlons in one. My heart was just pounding and it wouldn't slow down. And I've run hard before, 400 meters and stuff like that. And your heart calms down after a few minutes. And my heart was not calming down. We're five minutes, 10 minutes, and it's still pounding away and I'm rolling around the sand. And then my dad said, man, this is not good. We need to get you to a doctor. So they picked me up carried me to the van and and we went home. The doctor came and checked me out, checked my vitals and said, you know what? Uh, And by then I did start to calm down. He said, you'll be fine. Have a good night's rest. You'll be good to go tomorrow. So no one thought anything about that, but something bad was silently going on inside my body. I didn't want to mess up everyone's vacation. So every day I'd wake up and I'd go, let's just keep going. We got to meet that family. We haven't met them. I want my kids to meet them and them. So we just kept going on with the vacation. And the doctor said I'd be all right. So I'm kind of like, okay, I got to figure out how to overcome what I'm feeling because it just felt bad. About three days later, we were scheduled to come back to the States. And I remember literally in the airport, airport telling my wife, hey, you guys got to slow down. I can't walk as fast as you. I'd begun to swell. Uh, And I ended up gaining 25 pounds of fluid. I was just swelling everywhere. And I was just walking really slowly. It felt like someone took a basketball, filled it with water and shoved it in my stomach. And it just, it hurt to move. So when I got back to Chicago, I went to the ER and I was shocked to learn that because of the extreme physical exertion, uh, my kidneys shut down. I'd broken down too much muscle, which they're made out of protein, and it, the protein clogged these little tubes in the kidneys that keep your blood clean, um, and, and so they just shut down. So I was poisoning myself, and they said, we need to get you into dialysis right now. We've got to put a catheter in your neck because you're creatinine into like almost 13 times what it should be. You're poisoning yourself, and if we don't clean you up, you're going to poison yourself to death. And my head is just spinning. What? My kidneys aren't working? So they took me to dialysis, and uh, my first question to the doctor, of course it was, is this permanent? Like, will they come back? And the doctor said, we don't know. Every person reacts differently. It was a condition called rhabdomyolysis. They see us in triathletes and marathon runners that, that push themselves too hard. Um, so they did three rounds of dialysis and over the next week and a half, my kidneys did turn back on and I started passing the 25 pounds of fluid and an additional seven pounds of muscle mass that had just disappeared from my body. My legs were just these skinny little things and, and I ended up losing 35 pounds in the whole thing. Not my recommended weight loss program. Uh, <laughs> um, but thankfully, uh, in the end... I was told there was minimal scarring on my kidneys and that I could expect a, a, a life expectancy you know, for my kidneys. I was, I was good to go. No, no restrictions moving forward. And I thought, whew, now could this terrible ordeal be over? A week later, one of my closest friends uh, came by for a visit and challenged me to journal about what I had been through before I forgot the details. He said, over time, you're going to forget the details. You're going to want to capture some of that. Um, And now that you know your body is going to heal up, um, you know, you may need to just live in this a while. It's not often that you go through an experience like that. And why don't you just ask the Lord if there's something that he might want to speak to you and teach you along the way uh, as you process through what happened? So I started journaling about that. Um, And with the remaining time, I just want to share with you some of the Some of the lessons or even some of the things that I knew, but because of this situation, I knew at a deeper level. You ever go through that where you know something, but then something else happens and you learn that lesson at a deeper level? Well, that's what happened to me. About three things I was really familiar with in life. I grew up in a loving Jesus-centered family, so I knew these concepts. I want to talk to you about love, God's goodness, and I want to talk to you about hope. So these were not new concepts to me, but this profound experience Help me learn some things about them in a little different light. So the first theme that I want to talk to you about is hope. Is hope. What I learned about hope through this thing. And you know hope is a fragile but powerful force. You know this to be true. To be true. When you have hope, it seems like there's no challenge that you can't overcome. But when you don't have hope, even the simplest task, for some, even getting out of bed, is just too difficult when there's no hope. It all goes dark. So now, let me take you back to Davy and I when we were out there in the ocean, tired, struggling, full of panic, and about to give up. Davy had just climbed on me and we both went under and when we came up, uh, I, I was just shocked at how far we had come in such a short time. And I remember looking at my family and they were just happy walking along the shore, picking up stones and seashells and... and uh, and I remember thinking they have no idea, but they're about to go to a double funeral that is in their near future. And I pictured the chapel of the church where I went to at the time. I pictured two caskets. I pictured the portraits of Davy and me next to him. And I thought, wow, I wonder how the bodies would look if they recovered them. Um, we were about to die and nobody knew except me and I was like, oh, this is going to come crashing down on their lives. At first, I was, just, I was just so angry. I mean, like, how could Davey and I lose our lives for such a throwaway experience? It was just to be a, like a 15-minute dip in the Pacific Ocean, then get back in the car and, and go up north. It was a total nothing experience. And we're about to lose our lives because of that. Our lives can't end like this. Certainly not Davies. He's 13 years old. He has so much to to live for. I want to see him and my daughters grow up. I want to grow old with my wife. I was angry at the situation, but I was even more angry at myself. I was just beating myself, saying, how could I have let this happen? I know better about the dangers of the beach. Why didn't I tell Davy about, you know, riptides and, hey, let's not go in too deep. Let's just keep it right here and keep it safe. And, you know, I... Why didn't I just say, you know what, David, I am so sorry. We, we, we just, we just can't do it today. Let's go tomorrow to a better beach, you know, where there's, uh, you know, more people there. It's a little bit safer. I felt so stupid that I had let my son to his death. I did. And then a flood of profound sadness came over me. I'd lost all hope. And I started to think about our final minutes. I wondered what it would feel like to breathe in salt water. Would it hurt, would it sting? Um, Would Davy's death be my last memory? Or would my death be his last memory? Who's gonna go down first? All those thoughts raced through my mind, it seemed like in an instant, and then my focus immediately went to Davy. And I yelled at him and I said, Davy, we cannot panic, we're panicking, and we can't panic. This is when we have to be calm, Davy, stop panicking. And what happened next, in the next few seconds, is what saved our lives. Davy obeyed. He acted on my words. And his panic immediately turned into resolve, and he started swimming again. And that, that, in the darkest moment of the nightmare, birthed a small glimmer of hope, hope enough to get going, to not give up. Truth is I had enough strength to, uh, I didn't have enough strength. I didn't have enough strength to save a victim that was panicking, but I did have enough strength to help a contributor. And that's what Davy became in that dark moment. Now, I still did not have enough hope that we were getting back. I was kind of like, well, Davey's swimming. I'll help him and we'll try to get back. But this is just going to prolong it a little bit more. But if he's trying, I'm trying. And in any desperate situation, that's all you need. No matter how hopeless the situation, um, even the smallest glimmer of hope is enough to get you going. Not that the whole thing will get figured out, but that you could just make that next move. Its greatest potency for hope comes when you're in the deepest of trouble, when you see no way out. And here's the beauty of it. You don't need tons of hope. You do need a speck of it, though. You do need a speck of it, but a speck is good enough. Just whatever little hope you got, act on it. And here's the miraculous thing that happens when God gives you a little piece of hope or a little piece of faith. You take whatever you have to him and he multiplies it. He gives you a little bit of hope. You act on that hope. He shows up, gives you you more hope to make that next move. It's how God works with us as he's training us. Remember in the Old Testament when the the Jewish people were wandering in the wilderness? How did Jesus feed them? Did he give him a month's supply of manna? You know, that little bread flaky substance? Did he give them a week's supply? Of course not. How, how many, how long of supply did he give him? Just a day. Just a day. And he was training them to, the first thought of the morning is how God has provided for me. There's his provision daily. And then they would lean into that provision. Wake up the next day, there'd be new provision from God. And they'd lean into that. Every day he was training them to do that. So when we start heading in the right direction, acting on what God gives us, then God shows up with more along the way. Could be more grace, could be more hope, more resources, answers, new direction. But we, but we have to get started on what we know. We have to get started and act on, lean into what God is doing in us as he directs us. Lean into that and God will continue to show himself. The Bible says in Isaiah 40, 29 to 31, I love this passage. He gives strength to the weary and he increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And for Davy and I, in a very real physical sense, they will swim and not drown. So I acted on that hope that God provided in that dark moment. I took a deep breath, went underwater. I grabbed Davy's swim trunks in my right hand, shoved my left hand under his armpit, and I paddled as hard as I could toward the shore until we ran out of breath. And he started, when we came up, when I came up for air, we started yelling because we wanted those that were on shore to know that we were in trouble. And here's the thing when you're in trouble, you know what's worse than that? That's bad enough to be in trouble. What's even worse than that is when you're going through trouble alone, when you're going through trials alone. And there was just something instinctive in us that said, our family, our loved ones are on the shore and they don't know we're in trouble. So we just started yelling and screaming as loud as we could. And we didn't know if they would hear us because the waves are crashing and it's just chaos everywhere. And we're screaming, help, help. And then my families did understand. My daughter was the first one that said, they're in trouble. I said, no, no, they're having fun. He says, no, they're in trouble. And then my 80-year-old dad started to take off his shirt because he was going to get in the water for us. And they held him back and said, no, no, no. God forbid three generations. So no. And so they just started praying. There's nothing they could do at that time. Um, but here's the thing. When I saw them mobilizing, when I saw them reacting and looking at us, and I figured, okay, they know we're in trouble. Somehow that was another piece of hope. They say we're not alone in this thing. I know they can't do much, but at least we're not alone. They're praying. They're doing all that they can to save us. So I took another deep breath, went under, Grabbed Davy's swim trunks and under his armpit. I started pushing and pushing and pushing. Didn't seem like we were getting far. Came up for air again. But then I noticed my cousin Andre. He was on the shore too. Big guy, over six feet tall, wearing a big bright red shirt. He starts walking out as far as he could on a sandbar. And and all of a sudden, now it didn't seem as far. We don't have to get to the beach. We just got to get to Andre. And he was walking out this way. And so we started swimming toward him uh, at an angle. And because we couldn't tell where the current was, but as we were going toward him, we started making more progress. And I think it's because somehow he got us out of the current as we were moving toward him and not necessarily, you know, the shore. Um, And I thought, all right, there's another dose of hope. Let's go. Let's, let's, Let's keep, let's pushing. So I went underwater and I tried to grab my son's swim trunks and do the same thing again. But this time we were moving a little more but this time my hand started failing. I could not, I literally hit it and I, I thought I could grab his swim trunks again and it, there was nothing there. I could not grab him. My arms were not working. My legs were not working. Um, and thank God that little guy made it the last 10, 15 feet or so to Andre. Andre carries him and he's walking him back to shore And as he's walking him back to shore, I caught eyes with my son and I smiled at him because I thought, you're safe. You're safe, that's awesome. And then a wave went over me and I went down because I couldn't keep myself up. Couldn't have been that deep at that point, I don't know, maybe 10 feet or something like that because I went down and then all of a sudden my my feet hit sand. And I thought, whoa, now that feels great. And I thought, That was actually when, when my feet hit sand, that was the last bit of hope that would get me back. Cause I thought, man, that's, that's sand. I'm going to die someday, but it's not today. I'm going to push off of this thing. I'm going to get back. So my cousin came back. I kept pushing up and then he got me, took me back to the, took me to the shore. And then that's where I collapsed. And you know, the rest of that story. So I want to ask you a question this morning. What are you drowning in may not be water, may not be the ocean, but what are you drowning in this morning? Maybe it's an overwhelming sense that you're not living up to other people's expectations of you. Maybe it's a broken relationship or a family issue that hurts more than you can say, perhaps a school or work experience that's defeating you or an addiction that's winning in your life more than you want. Whatever the case may be, you don't have to have hope enough that the whole thing will get resolved. You just need hope enough to make the next move. And God will meet you along the way with what you need. Now, before I move to the next theme, I want to pray. I want to pray for everybody that's in this room who's in need of a speck of hope to keep going because of something you're going through right now. And before I pray, I want to ask you to do something courageous. These words are resonating with you. I want you to stand up right where you are if you are in the middle of something and you want to be more hopeful about it than you are. Right now, just please stand up. There's something you want to have more hope about than you have right now. And you want to ask God to give you some. Just stand up right where you are. Now, earlier I said it's awful to go through something hard but what's worse is to go through something hard alone. And so as you notice some folks standing up around you, I want to ask those of you that are around them, just stand up, go over, and just put a hand on their shoulder. Just put a hand on their shoulder. And by that, saying, you're not alone. You're not alone in this thing. And together, as a community of Christ, we're going to pray you through and walk you through this, okay? Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for being in this room. Thank you for being a God that is well acquainted with suffering and seemingly hopeless situations. Thanks for promising to never leave us or forsake us for being a truth telling God who tells us over and over again in scripture that we're going to go through trials and hard times. But thank you for being an expert at walking us through these valleys. You know just what we need and when we need it. And right now, Father, I want to pray on behalf of everyone who stood up in this room saying they want more hope from you about something that's going on in their life. And I'm asking, Father, that you would provide them with this powerful force that you created. You're the source of it. Hope in just the right measure. You know the exact circumstances that are making hope humanly difficult to access but you are not a God bound by our human point of view. You are not a God short on hope, and you're not a God that's unwilling to help. You're right here. You're a God abounding in your desire to birth hope in us when we need it the most. And so we ask for it. We ask for it, Father. Give to each of us as we need it, hope enough to get going. And we trust you for hope along the way to keep us going. Let it build our faith in you for all of our needs in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks so much. You can be seated. So it wasn't long before another theme started to ricochet in my soul at the time. And it had to do with God's goodness. I know that lots of folks were praying for me while I was in the hospital, thanking God for sparing my son and myself, and asking that God would, that we would both recover emotionally and physically, and specifically that my kidneys would turn back on. But something happened in the dialysis center that, upon further reflection, turned out to deepen our understanding of God's goodness more than we could have ever imagined. I remember sitting in the center wondering if dialysis three times a week was going to be a normal part of my life rhythm, just like it was for many of the folks that were sitting in the dialysis center at the, same, at the same time. And as I sat there for hours while my blood was getting cleaned with Leanne, my wife, next to me, something extraordinary happened to both of us at the same time. I remember we both talked, and we talked about this. We said, well, why don't we pray? And we got three four hours here, why, why don't we pray? But we did pray, but, but we didn't specifically pray for healing, which is a little odd because praying for God to heal us and heal family members is kind of a normal part of our, our prayer rhythm and a regular part of our life. But this time, as much as I wanted my kidneys to start, start working, I didn't feel, nor did she feel compelled to pray specifically for my kidneys to be healed. I looked over at the others for whom dialysis was a normal part of their life and I wondered, well, why not me? Um, If my kidneys never stopped, uh, if my kidneys never started working, would that change the way I viewed God's goodness? Would somehow he be less good because my kidneys didn't start working? And so in that moment, both Leanne and I were simultaneously flooded with peace and contentment in God's goodness, period. That his goodness would not be in any way impacted by whether or not my kidneys would turn on, that he would answer a particular prayer to have them healed. And then my thoughts immediately went to the first Bible verse I learned in my life. And that Bible verse was the first learn, verse I learned in my my life, because my parents, as they taught us the scriptures, would teach us, as we learned the alphabet, they would teach us a verse that started with the same letter in the alphabet. You know, so like if you were to say, G, I would say, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Or if you were to say, you know, J, judge not that ye be not judged. It was King James back then. Um, so whatever letter it was, there's a verse that immediately comes to my mind. So the verse A, which was the first verse, was this, Romans eight twenty eight. And it would usher in peace that met me and my wife right where we were. And it says this. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we know. Not that we doubt or we think. We know that all things work together. Not some things that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And I remember as a young kid growing up, knowing that verse, that when my dad was incorrectly incarcerated by Manuel Noriega's secret police in Panama, I heard my dad give testimony after that three-day ordeal in front of the whole church afterwards, talking about how God did great good in his soul, in his life, because of that three-day ordeal that he had to depend on God for everything, because he had no idea whether he'd ever get out. And then I remember my mom giving testimony when we were in Bolivia, and she was bleeding internally, and they couldn't get her to a doctor in time. And she felt life slipping away, and she begged God for life, and God stopped that internal bleeding. And then she talked about how it made her a better wife and a better mom, because she felt like God, you know, you know, God healed her and gave her a, a second chance to live beyond. And my parents lived it and they talked about it. And when stuff would happen in God's hands, all things work together for good. Even when the circumstances aren't good, he'll make it good in his kingdom, in his kingdom way. They passed it on to me and I'm passing it on to my kids. You remember the account in the New Testament when Jesus calmed the storm? You know, he was on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples and a quick storm came and the boat was rocking and they were taking on water and the disciples were freaking out and they were saying, oh my goodness, we're about to die. It was Jesus. How come he isn't helping out here? So where was Jesus? He was asleep. And, you know, but I was actually on the Sea of Galilee a few years ago on a boat and they said, this may have been, you know, a little bit bigger than the boat Jesus was on. And I'm thinking, Man, storm, boat, rocking. Like, was he really asleep? How in the world could he have been asleep when that boat's just rocking like that and they're taking on water and everything? And sometimes, you know, I wonder, well, um, this is just my own conjecture here, but, you know, did he let them, was he asleep? And he kind of let them think he was asleep to kind of test the disciples to see how they're going to react in the storm. And uh, so I'm, you know, thinking through that. And it dawned upon me, you know, I want to be the kind of Jesus follower that isn't in denial of the storm, but I want to be the kind of Jesus follower that in the midst of the storm recognizes where Jesus is and goes and lays down and takes a nap next to Jesus. That's the kind of follower I want to be. That you know what? There's no other safer place to be on earth than next to Jesus. So, if regular dialysis was to be a part of my life from there on out, we could rest in God's amazing goodness along the way. If that's what it took to get Davy and I back to shore, we were good with that. His grace would be sufficient. His love would be enduring. His plans for us, uh, for my life and my son's life, would not be derailed. That his words in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven would still be true for us when he said... For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And so today I want to remind us all of that at a deeper level. God can and will make all things work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't matter how bad the circumstances are. Nothing, nothing is beyond the reach of God's expertise of making good, come out of anything when we put those circumstances in his hands. And to help sear this into our consciousness in a way that I hope you will never forget, I want to ask you to raise your hand if you have personally experienced God turn something terrible into good in your life. Please raise your hand high so you can give a witness to that in your life. Now, those of you here, look around. No, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. I don't want you to miss this. Look around. Look at all the, the, the forest of hands that are up. Isn't that awesome? Every one of these is a testimony. You can put your hands down. Every one of those is a testimony of how God turned something terrible into something good. It's what he's an expert at. He does that in his kingdom way. Now, a couple words. For those of you that have not yet said, Lord, I want you to be the leader and forgiver of my life. This is the testimony. If you were to give your life to Christ, this is the testimony that's in your, this is the story that's in your future. If you give your life to Christ, he'll never leave you nor forsake you and he'll walk with you. And when you put things in his hands, he will always make things good in his kingdom. Now, for those of you that are believers and you raised your hand, you need to have this in your mind as well. Sear it in your mind. Why do you think? Because hard times aren't done in your life. Trials will come your way. I've got more coming my way. And I will keep that memory, the forest of hands that went up and said, no, 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 God is good. He can be trusted on. It's a beautiful picture. Final theme that, that came through my soul in that, in that season was, was some things around love and some things that I learned around a question that I asked as I was thinking about what had happened, here was the question. What was it that Davy did that caused me to turn into an absolute raving lunatic willing to sacrifice myself in an instant if it meant saving his life? What was it that he did that caused me to react that way? By the way, Davy was fine physically, but he was processing a lot of the emotions. On the way back in the van, he was in Leanne's arms saying over and over again, the thoughts, mom, the thoughts, I can't get the thoughts out of my mind. And one of those thoughts troubled him for a decade. About a year and a half ago was our 10th anniversary of when this thing happened and he's working uh, in New York and so I happened to be there and we went to dinner and he said, dad, there's been something that's been troubling me since that incident. And it's a phrase that in community with those I'm in community with, you know, they saw how troubled I was. And, and so I shared this thing that I'd never talked about before in community. And then they said, you know what? You need to share that with your dad. And so at that dinner, he said, dad, I just need to share with you a phrase that Satan put in my mind and I've been struggling with it for a decade. Now remember, he was 13 years old, and I'm involved in church ministry, and and, and he respected that. This was the phrase, the lie that he carried for a decade. The worst part of the family almost killed the best part of the family. Um, And it crushed me to hear that, that my little guy would carry that. Because there is, you know, I'm not the best part of the family, he's not the worst part of the family. And there's no difference in just because I'm in vocational ministry that somehow I'm more special than He works for Hershey, and he provides chocolate for all of us. So it's like, you know, free chocolate for life. Um, so, And he's using his creativity there, and he's in community, and he's, he's loving on the people that are around him. He's a minister at Hershey. Every bit as much as I'm a minister in what I'm doing. And I love this church because I know from Todd and I've seen messages and I I know that it's a deep core value here and, and it's preached from this stage all the time. You're all ministers. I love how he describes church services here. It's a pastor's conference because every one of you, every one of you is a pastor. And I love how you end your services. And he said, well, now, actually, the ministry starting as we let you go, you're going to go pastor wherever you are. With your mom or dad, or in the, your friends and workplace, whatever it is, your pastor. So, Davy, we're together in this. We're ministers together. And you see, yeah, I know, Dad. I just, I, you know, Satan has a way of of telling you lies, doesn't he? And we all carry him. I got lies that I pay attention to Satan more than I should, and the you know the evil messages that come through. And he said, I just needed to bring light to this thing so it doesn't have power over me anymore. And he's, he's, he's moving on, letting that go. That same year, back then, um, New Year's Eve, we did something that probably a lot of you guys do. Uh, we gathered together as a family, and we just kind of do the high-low thing. What were the highs and lows of the year? And we kind of process that, talk about that. So when it came time for Davy's turn, he, um, he uh, uh, went and said, I got to go get my journal. So he went and got his journal, and uh, he read a long passage of stuff that he had journaled that very day that this thing happened. I'll just read you a little excerpt of what he told us. Um, Called, This is what he said. Those few bits of sand, when he finally touched sand, soothed my mind and gave me assurance. And even though the water was still up to my ears, I knew I was safe. I got to the shore, looking up at everyone, and then I sat down, and I turned back to look at you, dad. And I wondered whether he would remember that, that moment when we caught eyes and he's, and I smiled at him because I was totally fulfilled because he was safe. And he remembered that and journaled about that. And, uh, uh, I turned around once to see my dad and I knew he'd be okay. Not because he was 50 meters from the shore, not because other people were trying to help him. He was still in trouble, but he was good because he knew I was safe. That's what God communicated in my look, my smile, when I caught eyes with him. And beyond reliving it, as he read his entry, the thing that rocked me deeply was Davy saying that he knew I would be okay, even before I was out of physical danger, because I knew he was safe, and he was right. The moment he was safe, I was good, saving his life in that moment, and he knew in the depth of his soul that I loved him more than anything and more than myself. So back to the original question, what was it that Davey did that caused me to turn into an absolute irrational, raving lunatic willing to sacrifice myself if it meant saving him? Was it because he behaved so well that week, even though he wasn't getting to go swim? Was it because he's a great kid and he is? Was it because he's really talented or smart or creative and the world would miss him if he didn't save his life? Was it those things? Is that why I reacted that way? Wasn't any of that. I acted that way. Because he's my son. And I love him more than myself. There's nothing that Davy could have done to earn my, my love. He just had it. Truth is, he could have been a prodigal, a misbehavior, an addict, or a rebel. It wouldn't have made any difference in my response. Because I love, my love for him is bigger than his behavior. And I'm so grateful that Davy knows in his heart. That there's nothing he ever needs to do to earn my love or sacrifice on his behalf. And God's love for you and for me is way beyond that. Way beyond that. God doesn't say, earn it, try to earn my love. He says, enjoy it based on the forgiveness of your sins that I made possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. This God who sacrificed himself for you, he wants to be in community with you. In a relationship with you. You know, in many ways, I'm now grateful that I went through that incident with Davy because it taught me what it was like to feel complete hopelessness and defeat. That situation was the most humbling and humiliating experience of my life. I never felt so small, so insignificant, and being confronted by the power of the ocean. Back then, I remember thinking, boy, I don't matter much. And now I'm blessed to work with a ministry that's rescuing children that don't think they matter much in this world. Do you realize that in our world today, there are about 400 million children living on less than $1.90 a day. $1.90 a day. Extreme and unacceptable poverty. And that number can be so big, it kind of, at times, has a way of paralyzing us to go, well, what can we do for 400 million, 400 million children? But you know, best we can tell, and really only God knows, but when we check out various numbers that we get from ministries here and there around the world, there are about 500 million Jesus-following families in the world. Again, only God really knows, but best we can tell, it's about that. Here's what I do know for sure. The church can meet the need. Jesus said that he would build his church. Gates won't, hell hell won't prevail against it. He's also one that said the great commission go into all the world, make disciples of uh, out of all nations, teaching them to observe all his ways. Jesus was the one that said the church can do this. The kingdom of heaven can come on earth, but you know how it comes to earth through kingdom bringers like you and me, when we let God come into our lives and lets us be kingdom bringers wherever we, wherever we go. Um, But I tell you, In the midst of all that kind of poverty, here's what I've also seen, a great amount of hope. Because I've seen how God provides hope and goodness and love and how that's releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. And we get to serve a little over two million children in in 25 countries, some of the most impoverished communities in the world. And we serve these children by serving 7,500 churches. So you may go sponsoring a child, and I'm so grateful to Watermark. I think I heard that you guys set a goal of getting in the lives of 2,500 children, and you're now at 2,700 children, changing their lives. But let me tell you where those resources are going. Those resources are going to equip a local church who is within walking distance of that child. You are putting that child in the arms and the hands of a church that's going to love on that child and that that church is going to come around that child during their most at-risk years of their life and they're going to bring the love of Jesus to them the full gospel to them they're going to meet their physical and their cognitive and their emotional needs and their spiritual needs they're going to love on them they're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus so your sponsorship is actually equipping a local church to help them be salt and light, to be that, that light on the hill, to bring the love of Jesus to that community. So thank you, Watermark. And an extra thank you because I was born in El Salvador and so many of the kids that you're sponsoring are from El Salvador. I love that. And know that in Central America, we serve about 300,000 children through churches. Um, And you know how in the news we hear about these 10,000 people or so that are marching to the border from Central America? I can tell you, none of them are our kids. Why do you think that's the case? Because there's a church that's loving these children. Why would they go on a crazy, very perilous thousand mile march when they're being loved on right where they are? They're being loved on right where they are. And you're helping make that a reality. So thank you. Thank you so much. Because every time a child receives the love of Jesus through a warm meal and clothes and medical care, you know, a letter from a sponsor, it gives them this precious gift of hope, this precious gift to understand that they're not invisible in this world, that there is a God that knows their name and is gonna love on them and wants to be in relationship with them. So bless you, Watermark, in Jesus' name, for being a community, that is bringing the kingdom of heaven in Dallas, in El Salvador, and the uttermost parts of the world. Let's pray with me. Gracious heavenly father, I wanna thank you for being the God that you are, so faithful, so trustworthy, so good, so merciful, so loving, and you invite us into a relationship with you. Ah, oh, it's the best. Thank you, Father, for journeying with us, for having patience with us as we learn to walk in your ways. I thank you, Lord, for being who you are. Thank you for this faith community that's been faithfully serving here in Dallas now coming on 20 years. I pray that you would continue to walk with them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everyone.